Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. We are joined today with two local activists, Paul and Caitlin, and they've come in to talk to us about what is climate change and biodiversity laws. If you guys want to introduce yourselves and talk to about talk to us about the parties that you're engaged with. Uh, I'm Caitlin. I'm part of the local uh, Northern Irish Youth Strike, uh, which is basically like a bunch of us kids uh, organising through social media to do uh, sort of like protest movements around the place. <laughs> Um, I'm Paul Brogan. Um, I have recently, well, last six months, been organising with uh, Extinction Rebellion. Um, my background, like I have a PhD in electrical engineering, renewable energy integration, um, and also uh, um, I've also I also did physics at uh, undergraduate and master level. So, what even is climate change? Uh, well, climate change is a massive issue. You see it on the news all the time, but it's basically like the destruction off our planet on like every level um in like nature and just like every single aspect of our living world i guess like that that's what it affects and it's fundamentally caused by human action that's the main point i think yeah um so a lot of climate change arises from the emissions of gases um which come from the way we live i guess i mean most notable would be um carbon dioxide and methane uh, carbon dioxide coming from the combustion of fossil fuels primarily, um, but also you have biodiversity, um, the degradation of land, such as uh, peatlands, um, releasing CO2. Um, but then you also have methane release <clears throat> uh, from anthropogenic, uh, that's human origins, um, from things like cows and so on, um, but also industrial processes, and then also from the melting of things like permafrost. And that would be the climate change side of things. So you've talked about what it actually is. So why we see it on the media and the news all the time. So how is it? How has it affected our lives, and how is it going to affect our lives in the future? Um, that's the thing. I think it's quite almost selfish of us to think like, how is it going to affect me? It's already affecting millions of people over the world. Like you see, like whether that's just from like deforestation, rising temperatures in the Indian Himalayas, like areas like that. Like it's people are already being affected by this all over the world and it's only now we're starting to see little bits of that come in for instance like the massive amount of floods that have been happening in England recently um but I think over time we're going to see it like directly like affecting us as like western um society like more and more and that's when we're going to kind of click on and realize it's a problem yeah I think Caitlin touches on a very good point that um yeah the injustice of it all that the people who are most responsible typically in you know what we call the western hemisphere are going to be some of the last to be affected so one of the best places in the world to be is in the british isles um because we have a big ocean beside us keeping us cool like relatively cool and keeping us relatively wet um but yeah i mean you can attribute certain things in sub-saharan africa like the migrant crisis 2015 2016 there were a lot of causes some of which were um crop shortages and famines and similarly in uh, syria as well one of the the worst civil wars we've seen in like even it's gone on longer than the first world war at this stage nine years and wow. that was driven um in part, at least, by climate change. But as Caitlin mentions, the press here reports the truth of being, we've had, you know, had, uh, Storm uh, Kira and then Storm Dennis and places are still flooded and we've still got quite extreme weather. You know, we're seeing our weather patterns shift from, you know, colder in, say, December and January to now getting colder in March and April. Um, so we're seeing it now, but the, the real catastrophe will be in the future. You know, there's a lag of about 30 years on... The temperature rise. What we are seeing now is the call has been caused by emissions that were possibly probably before you guys were even born, and whenever I was still in primary school, right? And we knew about it then. We were talking about greenhouse, the greenhouse effect, back in the eighties and nineties, and we knew this was coming. And the warming we are experiencing now is due to that. So even if we stop, we have still got a lot of warming coming, which could be catastrophic if you believe the science. 
I mean, it's clear that this has been a problem that's been plaguing our society for so, so long. And it seems like now we're only finally seeing headlines of what people are actually doing about it, which is one of the things that you guys are coming in to talk about. So we see these headlines about groups like Extinction Rebellion and Youth Strike all the time, which both of you are part of. So, Paul, who are Extinction Rebellion? Um, So Extinction Rebellion are... well. It's, it's an interesting question because we're always we have this idea of a hierarchy in our head. I think you know that's the way businesses are run. That's often the way families are run. You know, we've got this thing that who's above who. And so, and that's if, so if you ask who are Extinction Rebellion, you want to say like, oh, it's this figurehead, you know. But it's not really like that. Each group is rel- basically autonomous, but they sign up to the same code of ethics. And so we've got the three demands and ten principles, and then the rebel agreement. And that's three demands are what we are demanding of the government, principally, but potentially society. Uh, the prince, the 10 principles are how we engage with each other and the rebel agreement is how we engage in direct action. And the reason we're engaging in direct action is up until now. Um, so principle one is tell the truth. And we think that we've we've gone out to the scientists and said, tell us about climate change. And they've got back to us going, it's catastrophic. Um, principle two is act now. So take the Paris Agreement, 2015. Um, we say to them, you know, so we made certain commitments to keep temperatures below certain levels. And since then, all we've done is put out the study, put out the study, put out the study. So you had the IPCC 2018 report, you had the UN 2019 report. They all say we have to get our emissions down to net zero by between 2040 and 2055 globally, not just the UK. Um, but we're not acting now. We're just like, oh, is there any other answers out there? It's like being told by one doctor, you know, you've got cancer. And you go, oh, no, I don't like that doctor. Uh, is there another doctor? Well, ask it. Oh, no, you definitely have cancer. Oh, no, you definitely have cancer. And it's like, you know, you should stop smoking, but you just want to keep smoking and it's easier to find a second opinion, even though they're all confirming. So that's why it's act now. And that's what Extinction Rebellion are doing. We've got very frustrated. There's a lot of people out there who have been engaged for 30 years on this topic. Nothing's happened. We've reached a precipice. And then that's why we feel it's justified to cause disruption. People who are you know, white and middle class, as we're often <laughs> denigrated as. We're not the typical type of people to get upset about these sorts of things or want to cause a fuss. But we um, that's how we've ended up here. So like you said, people, there are, it's got such a wide membership. It's got such a wide media coverage. But sometimes it's kind of negative, I would say. Um, and the methods that... Uh, extension rebellion are linked to using in order to achieve these 10 principles and get through the three demands are usually quite extreme i would say um so what would you what would you say about that and why would you say that is an important part of the extinction rebellion kind of forcing their message through um so extinction rebellion would, would look back to previous as you say, forcing their message through. So things like uh, civil rights movements, and we can particularly, I mean, the American one is easier to look at. Uh, civil rights in Ireland is, is a prickly subject, you know, and, but one we would really like to, you know, our, our special little country can have our own special discussions. But if you look at somewhere like, um, say, South, uh, South Africa or North America, USA, um, then it's much clearer, you know, as far as like the kind of good guys and bad guys go. But at the time, their methods were described in exactly the same way as Extinction rebellions are being described the likes of gandhi in india you know proposing non-violent direct action to overcome uh, like an incredibly powerful foe and we have to remember that there are a lot of people who just want business as usual they're making a lot of money they may or may not have accepted the science that in 50 or 100 years that are you know we're going to have catastrophic collapse in terms of food production and so on um but yeah, that's why we're, sorry, it's probably gone slightly off the, the topic. But yeah, that's why we feel it's justified to, to cause this. But I think the media will always do this. The media is negative. It is sensationalistic. It's not in depth. It doesn't wish to engage you in discussion about your ideas. It just wishes to, you know, nitpick, find something which is wrong, and then just magnify that. Whatever causes sensation in people, that's what they want to put across. They, yeah. And I think that's why they pick certain events. So you briefly touched on the idea of self-sacrifice um, of some of the members of Extinction Rebellion. So why is that important to the cause? Yeah. So I think this is charge of being a hypocrite or alternatively, as Jim Alster you know, said, as a virtue signaler. These are sort of 
words which are often used in certain cir- circles of the internet. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's absolutely true. I mean, you know, you put, it was for so long, people would put on a little ribbon to say, I believe in this, I believe in that. You know, it's like the rainforest was a big issue back in the day, back in, when I say the day, I mean in the 90s, 80s and 90s, destruction of the rainforest. It was easy to put a pin on, you know, and just say, oh, this is me. Think better of me. I'm believing in this. But if you're actually willing to get arrested, then that changes things. That if you're willing to go and be arrested for something you believe in, it's very difficult for someone to turn around and say, oh, you're just a virtue signaler. So, I mean, in a way, the over-dramatised, sensationalist, extreme, in a way, media coverage is a good thing because it's showing that people are so committed and it is such an extreme cause that needs to be acted upon. Yeah. Um, And Extinction Rebellion are very clear about the reason for their arrests. For one, media report arrests, right? The British media will just ignore you, right, if they can. If you turn up and do a march, they'll go, oh, look, there was there was like a million people marching through London, right? I did that for, in the Iraq war. And like, yeah, it was on the front page for a day or two, and then it went away, all right? And nothing came of that. A million people, you know, traveled to London. I was lucky enough to be living in London. But uh, they, to make this protest, they politely protested, they were politely ignored. But what the media do get excited about is this sensationalism, and we have to... We have to play within the game. We don't get to make the rules. We don't get to decide that this is a time of image and not a time of substance. Therefore, we have to use the time of image to try and bring some substance to the debate. It's really sad. I wish it wasn't like that. But it is a, it is a game we're in. Kind of the idea of any publicity is, is good publicity. Yeah, so a really perfect example of that is the um, the tube strikes. I mean, like that was not really supported at all by Extinction Rebellion as a group. But those, those small groups, the affinity groups, groups of like 12 people, chose to go and do those strikes. And I can't in all good faith say that they were a bad idea because that's what got the media. And, you know, if you say Extinction Rebellion, you go like, no, I haven't heard of them. The guys that caused disruption in London haven't heard of them. The guys that like glued themselves to the train. Oh, yeah, yeah, those guys. Right. So, I mean, yes, it's brand awareness and it's sort of playing into that crappy advertising stuff. But at the same time, you have to get your message out there. This is an important message. So It is a very important message, but do you think that you could, it could get to a point where it's too passionate and too emotive and um, the argument kind of gets lost in emotions and in extreme actions instead? I think there is a very good mechanism within Extinction Rebellion for dealing with that. Um, and that has to do with the regenerative culture side of things. And Because the, these things need to be processed emotionally. And up to now, they... Um, a lot of people feel alone. Like a lot of people who have read, say, the IPCC report, um, they're, you know, in their rooms, they haven't got people to talk to and actually having that circle where you can emotionally process these things means that you're probably less um, prone to act rashly. I mean, if you want to take an extreme example, you know, the people who go and shoot up their schools in America, typically loners, they have a lot of emotions to process, but they haven't got anyone to talk to about or the people they talk to are very negative, like if they go on the internet or something like that. I mean, 4chan or whatever is a you know a dirty place. Um, but I think within Extinction Rebellion, there's much better ways to process these emotions. And then there's also a very good theory of change, which is violence only really benefits the person with the biggest stick, right? The government have fighter jets, right? You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> They're only too willing to deploy, uh, given the half an excuse. So I think uh, that's, um, and it's also part of the group mentality. When you get people together discussing sensibly, then extremes tend to get de-radicalized in a certain way. I mean, there is this argument that I've read about that it should be led by rationale instead and it should be kind of science driven. But everything you're saying is that it is and it just it's reached this balance of finding uh, an area to talk about emotions and and talk about what's happening, but also you are backed by the science and backed by the rational aspect. So it seems that a balance has actually been reached. Would you agree with that? Uh, certainly. Look, motiv- motivation does not come from rationality. Like I think you know we're brought up to think that we're we're rational creatures, but I think the more we see the internet unfold, the more we have to realize that like you know the head follows the heart much more often than the heart follows the head. It's like you know you're not lying. You're not on a street in the cold driving rain or something like this, getting arrested by cops because, you know, of some sort of rational thing. It has to be an emotional basis. And, I mean, you just have to look for that. And I always encourage people to look for a place that they love first, you know, um, and somewhere they wish to protect and see what emotions that brings up. And that's your motivation to do things. But behind that is an understanding of the science around that. 
I mean, it seems like a highly motivated and highly driven agenda. But is there ever going to be a danger of compromise? Like you said, the government is a is a huge party. Like it's got the biggest stick. It's got these fighter jets. It's it's got more power. So you spoke really briefly about um, taking two steps back and one, when you take one step forward. So could you expand on that point a bit more, please? I'd like to touch on the compromise thing. Um, I went to see uh, Kumi Naido, who was the, I don't know, Secretary General or something like that of uh, the, the um, Amnesty International. And he made two good points. He was like, well, he made a lot of good points, but he made a good uh, quote. And that was... Um, the climate doesn't negotiate and the science doesn't change, right? The climate's not going to compromise with us. It's not going to go to us like, oh, okay, I understand you really, uh, no SUVs, but you can drive minis, right? It's not going to come to that. So I'm sort of more concerned about the climate, which is, you know, uh, which is greater than any government. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's we're not even looking for, like, what's the compromise? Uh, actually, to be honest, I'm seeing this a lot. I work in electrical engineering, renewable energy integration, right? So IPCC report said we need to be carbon neutral, like zero carbon being emitted as a human population by 2055, right? That's ridiculous, but that's what is necessary. Um, and so I see this compromise. So it's it's almost like the stages of grief, uh, you know, sort of your know, denial and then negotiating, and that's where we're at. And, you know, people like Ireland and the UK are saying we'll be carbon neutral by 2050, and it's like, and even the power system, that's all they're aiming for 2050. This is going to slip to 2070. There's no ambition. There's no drive. And so we are at the point where they're trying to compromise with us. But they're not compromising with us. They're compromising with the environment, the climate. So, Last couple of questions. If there was um, any assumptions that listeners might have about Extinction Rebellion, um, could you break any of them down or talk about how they're false or how they're true? Yeah, I'd make the point of it's a little bit like the the iceberg analogy that um, what you see in television, like the people being arrested, is the tip of the iceberg. Behind every one person that's arrested, there are ten people, um, including things like you know arrestee support, the uh, well-being officers, and so on. Um, the discussions that were had before arriving there, the logistics to you know to get there. So there are so many things that happen. Um, to get that one person who's willing to be arrested and has volunteered to be arrested there. And those rules are available to anybody who wishes to engage. You do not need to be arrested on any level to be part of Extinction Rebellion. Our first job is education, tell the truth, because the government are, and well, the government aren't doing it and the corporations are doing the opposite of it, right? They're consciously trying to advertise to us to consume more when we really need to be going in the opposite direction. Um, and there's so many sort of well-being rules. It seems hard and masculine and kind of being dragged off the streets, but it's it's very, very soft and fluffy as well. And there are rules for everybody, right? This is a holacracy. You arrive with your skills and we find a rule for you and you can engage in action. And engaging in action is one of the best ways to overcome the sort of malaise or sadness that we find in the earth at the minute. So for people who are a bit apprehensive and the only thing they, they have to go off is you join Extinction Rebellion and you get arrested, it's it's simply not the case. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, now go along to some boring, simple XR event and then just meet some of the people and chat to them and then see what you think of them. I think the idea that... Uh, they find something tailored to you and you can input whatever you can is a really good message. But what other things do you want people to take away from listening to this episode? Oh, yeah, well, I would say that personal, like, so I'm going to quote Kumi Naido again. Personal change is a good place to start, but it's a bad place to finish, right? We need system change. You know, by the time your goods reach you, 80% of the CO2, for instance, has been emitted. You know, most of the environmental damage has been done by the time the goods reach you. And we need to lead and put pressure on those upstream corporations and so on we need government intervention uh so if you are you know a vegan living off a small holding and you can convince yourself that you're not doing any damage you're still going to get caught up in this sort of landslide of climate change it's not enough it's good but it we need to do more and similarly you know if you're a meat eater that flies every two weeks it's still in your interests to like you know get this done because it needs to happen I think that's a really good point about how people, when they do receive their products, they don't realise that the damage has been done. You know, they can start recycling and start doing things, but the, for the majority, they have this product and it has gone through a lot of CO2 emissions, things like that. So the next time someone sees an Extinction Rebellion headline, whether it be sensationalist or a bit extreme in the media, what do you want them to take away from it? Um, yeah, I suppose 
they just they can share it if they like they should definitely scratch deeper that's i think that was it for me personally you know i saw like the relatively extreme stuff and it took me a while to actually scratch deeper um to kind of because it is very superficial what's put across in the media um and yeah just like literally just go into the ipcc 2018 summer executive summary go to page i think it's page six there's a graph there take 10 minutes to look at it and then read a couple of the just the bullet points before and after and you know realize that that's the motivation for people lying down there for anyone who doesn't know what the ip C report is IPCC report is or the COP report is what are they so um back in 2015 we had the Paris Agreement where um, when like a bunch of politicians basically got together and they agreed to keep global temperature rise but well below two degrees C and aim for a target temperature of the world of 1.5 degrees C rise above pre-industrial levels. The reason we rarely discuss why those figures were chosen, but it's because beyond that point, it is catastrophic, Uh, you know, but we're not told what the catastrophe is. We're just told this is the objective. So in 2015, um, this was agreed on by most of the world. Uh, And as as they do, they go turn around to the International Panel on Climate Change and say, can you go and tell us what we have to do to achieve this target which we have set ourselves? So three years later, during which time we have only exponentially increased our CO2 emissions, um, we, uh, you know, like this is like in those three years, probably as much CO2 emitted in maybe like nine years in the 80s, right? Possibly all of the 70s. You know, that's the scale of what we're doing now. Um, So they came back and said, okay, here's the results. You need to hit net zero by 2040 to actually respect the um, the uh, Paris Agreement or like the very worst case scenario, net zero emissions of CO2 by 2055. That's what the IPCC report says. And then the UN emissions gap comes later. That was 2019. And it basically says the same thing and possibly in stronger and more catastrophic terms. If you want to see like, you know, if you think that Extinction Rebellion is talking about cataclysm, you just want to read these scientific reports and they are conservative reports. Nothing gets in there without consensus. So the extremes of bad, which is actually what we're witnessing, are not in those reports. I think, again, those reports will all be linked in the show notes um, for you to check them out. And then, Do I add that? Or? Yeah. Anything I mean, else? even like the timing. I feel like I just like, I don't know, I don't have like the right words yes, to I, be able yes, to... Can you bring the personal touch? Because right in 2015, like how old were you? Um... Age numbers 13. Right, so do you remember like the Paris Agreement and stuff? Or? I remember hearing about it like wee bits, but like I, I wasn't really told about it. Um, we had like in primary school, we didn't have like geography or science. We had this thing called World Around Us. And I think I like asked in class about it. I was like, you like, what's the crack with this? And like, <laughs> you don't, you don't really, you don't really like, no, nobody really know. And like none of my teachers would have known about it either. I think I, invi- I went in like second year or something. I joined the environmental club and that was the first time I kind of heard about it and it was taken seriously. But apart from that, it's just like, I don't know, I didn't I didn't really know about it. It wasn't until I got more involved with the youth strike that I actually was like, oh, that's oh, that's important, that thing with Paris. And I think there was, then there was obviously the news about um, Trump pulling America out of the Paris Agreement. And I was like, that's a bad thing? Like, why? So it kind of stemmed from that sort of curiosity and following the media. But I know a lot of people don't necessarily do that or follow the media as much as like meticulously as I do so like not everyone has the opportunity to even know about it and that's 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 a that's that's a problem in itself. I think that stresses how important these youth groups are and like you were saying even your school's environmental club Mm. is important because you're not going to get 12 year old or 13 year olds looking up reports that they see on the news you barely get them watching the news so I think that um just further stresses how important the youth target is. I'd, I'd like to make clear that uh, the sort of no blame, no shame, like um, policy is one of the principles of Extinction Rebellion. So if you don't know about this stuff, that's fine. To be honest, like I've stu- I did like physics at undergraduate and I did a uh, PhD in renewable energy integration and I hadn't read these reports properly until recent months whenever I was actually presenting them to, to groups. And it's one of the things that we do is this Heading for Extinction talk which basically outlines the science of um, biodiversity loss and also climate change. I think you don't even need to be a science expert to understand how important and how cataclysmic this whole thing is. 
Yeah, there's actually there are summaries available online as well of individual reports that will be easier. That's what a lot of us in the U-Strike take reference from because they, they do have sort of condensed versions if you don't want to get into like the real heavy scientific <laughs> terminology that you don't get. Like there are, there are simplified versions. And we'll have some links to those in the show notes too if you don't want to be dredging through long reports. <laughs> 600 pages is a lot. 40 pages is plenty. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so now we're going to move on to Caitlin. Uh, who's coming in to talk about youth strike and her part in that. So we've just heard so much about Extinction Rebellion, Caitlin, and are there any parallels in theory and method in any part of youth strike that can be drawn um, against Extinction Rebellion? Uh, well, yeah, definitely. There's a lot of parallels, even just in the reason that the organisation exists. We are actively trying to raise awareness around the climate catastrophe and like trying to promote pressure on the government um as well as to try and like get people just aware and educated about like what's happening and what climate change is um i guess uh extinction rebellion also would do like protests and stuff and we'd be quite a protest based group um and xr do actually help out the youth strikes they like offer like first aid there's a a regen table which is like coffee and tea and biscuits if anyone wants to take a wee sit down um and just like things like that materials like xr are very very useful and like a really fundamental part of the local youth strikes in Belfast. so if anyone's listening and thinking oh it's just another activist group what are the main differences between youth strike and extinction rebellion uh well youth strike is definitely more as, as you can probably tell by the name orientated towards uh the youth of like our local like community um, I would say the difference is we don't do as many sort of radical actions because a lot of us are like under 18 as well, like the majority of us are. Um, so like that sort of like risk of like getting arrested or whatever, if you want to do that, um, it's just it's just not as easy a thing to kind of go with. Like, I don't know, like we all have parents who are shouting at us to, and don't like us going in and missing school anyway. Um so there is that sort of like different level, like, like you feel like you have to be a little bit more protected in some way because you're still technically a child. Um, I would say, I'm not sure, like we're, we, we, we don't have as many sort of like work groups and things like that. Like I know XR have a lot of like artwork groups and a lot of meetings and things. A lot of the U-Strike is based online that's the majority of like where we like interact with each other we have zoom call meetings uh, lots of instagram and whatsapp group chats and it would actually probably be only just once a month when the local, local groups all come together for the strikes um but apart from that we don't really see each other as much um but of course then we have that advantage of being in school so you see your local peers that would be going to your strikes there uh, but it, it is a different setup and it does take a different sort of um, strategy to kind of make it work. I mean, you briefly touched on this when you were talking about the parallels of Extinction Rebellion, but if you could just summarise, what is Youth Strike then? What are their policies? What do they stand for? Uh, yeah, no, we have um, a bunch of demands, actually, that are sort of like the basis of what we do. Uh, so the first one is Save the Future. So that's basically putting pressure on the government to declare a climate emergency, which thankfully they have done uh, locally in Stormont just a few weeks ago, um, and to implement a Green New Deal uh, to achieve climate justice. So that is probably the sticking point for our local government as well. They're kind of not entirely like too convinced of it. Like a lot of um, MLPs were quite sceptical of this sort of like Greta culture, quite like, I don't know, patronising. So we're trying our best. <laughs> but um, And demand two is teach the future. So that's uh, that would be another similar thing from XR where we're trying to educate people about like what we need to do to try and fix this problem um, and to like just make other young people aware of the urgency of this issue. Uh, we have tell the future, so demanding that the government sort of communicates the severity of the ecological crisis, like to tell people the danger we're in and to sort of, I don't know, just make people more aware and not sort of brush it off and just see it as that thing on the news that's happening halfway across the world. And then the fourth demand is to empower the future. So that's making sure that young people are included in policymaking, uh, just making sure no one um, is excluded from participating in our democracy, especially because it's going to be the young people who face the um, 
sort of the consequences of the government like destroying our natural environment and completely just taking advantage of it. If we could just go back to the point you made earlier about the Greta, um, yeah, yeah, Greta Thunberg. Uh, yeah, Greta Thunberg. I think just yeah. like Extinction Rebellion, it, her name is thrown over all over social media, oh, yeah, all yeah. over the news uh, headlines. Why do you think that's important, and why do you think that's looked down upon, like you said? Um, I would say, like I know from doing a lot of research into Greta, she didn't necessarily want to be the sort of poster girl for the strike or for just like the movement as a whole. Um, but the media love to have a poster figure. I even find that we have like a couple of youth representatives, uh, the the Belfast Live and stuff like that. They will cling on to and they're like, oh, this person's at every strike. So we're going to put her face here and her face here. Like the media really like to have a sort of like centerpiece person to look to and kind of, yeah, almost like make connected like a brand or something. But, um, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, like she is just like a kid and a lot of the negative feedback she gets are from uh, people who are sceptical of her message. And that in itself, like you see politicians on Twitter and everything, whether that's from like Vladimir Putin to Trump bullying Greta. Um, I think the way she deals with it is fantastic. Like you see like Trump described Greta as uh, a child with anger management issues that needs to go to cinema and, she and chill with her a Twitter. <laughs> yeah, she changed yeah. her Twitter biography to that. Oh, it was so funny. I think it says a lot that the, as you said, the poster girl is mm-hmm. a girl for youth yeah. strike. So I think one of the main points that I do want to touch on is that this emphasis on the youth, like you were saying, you're connected through social media, Mm. you only meet once a month. Why do you think it's important? Because like Paul touched on earlier, climate change is something that's been going on for years and years. So why do you think it's important that the youth take a lead on tackling it? Um, I would say, like, obviously it's going to affect us most, but it's not even that like we should take on that role. It's that we are having to take on that role because you still have that um, significant amount, isn't it? Like 40% of the people in the UK who are adults uh, don't really see climate change as an issue. They kind of just dismiss it. And a lot of those people, a lot of that demographic are middle-aged people. So the youth are actually having to harness that information and being like, look, this is an emergency. This is a really big deal. Um, So it's not even that we should, it's that we are being forced to just because of our own moral standards. We don't want to be stuck in like the mess that the past generations have created for us. In doing so, do you think the fact that it is so youth-based and also briefly touching on what Paul said about how the media is sensationalising this, do you think that the youth alongside social media, which gives lots of different streams of opinions and things, can kind of see past that one track line of climate change isn't real or we don't need to act that fast or, you know, it's not as important as these kids are saying. Do you think um, younger generations can see past that and talk more about how it is? And, and Oh, yeah, I definitely say with this, the accessibility to information through social media. So you have, as Paul was saying, the IPCC report, you have the UN report. Uh, we have access to review the Green New Deal and stuff like that. So youth are actually being given an opportunity or a better opportunity to be able to like understand the world around them and to be able to show people whether that's on twitter or on instagram here we actually have the facts and we know what we're talking about um so you can't really argue with that and if you do then it is literally just like you know you can have your own opinion but you can't have your own facts i think that's a huge benefit of social media you know like you're saying you're sitting here and you can reach someone thousands of Mm -hmm. miles away and talk about what you both can do to help the environment and that's one of the great things that it is targeted towards the younger generations who are so adapted to this social media but do you think there are any downfalls of targeting it towards a youth and a younger generation uh well yeah I would definitely say there are there are a couple things that like aren't the greatest like I mean, I'm definitely not a believer that anyone should not know about their circumstances, but I can see from just looking at or like our local youth strike, there are a lot of very young kids there or like people like just coming into secondary school. And you can see they are very, very upset and very scared about the climate crisis. And it's just like, I don't know, it can be quite upsetting seeing this sort of information when you're not maybe like ready for it and you're just like scrolling Instagram and then 
like you, you have access to that information which tells you oh right well potentially my future is doomed like what am I doing like I've talked to a lot of people in the strike who would feel very depressed about that and would be very like well, you know, I'm only here today, so I feel like I have a purpose. Like, what's the point if, like, in, like, 30 years we're going to be past the, like, kind of comeback point and we're all going to be doomed? Like, it can have a really, really negative effect on young people's mental health. But at the same time, I feel like it's really important that we harness that knowledge and use that sort of passion and that anger to make us want to take action because that's the only way that anything's going to get done. Would it be right in saying another one of the downfalls of targeting it towards a younger generation is it somehow loses its respectability in a way? Oh, definitely. Definitely a lot. Like, young people are patronised. That's just... It seems to be part of culture. Like, oh, right, well, if you're a younger person, then you obviously don't have as much life experience and you're not going to... You're not going to know as much about this stuff. But that... that It just really irritates me because, like, you see that, but, like, at the same time we do know what we're talking about. We have been told, we have educated ourselves because we are passionate. Um, and like, like I, I don't know, do, do grown-ups get a kick out of that? Like completely dismissing children's opinions? Like, especially like you see that again with Greta, like she's completely like not taken seriously by a lot of people because she's a teenager. And it's, it's disgraceful. It's honestly, it's shameful. And that's why it's so important that we have organisations like XR who are filled with adults who actually respect us and they, they're like they're here to support us but they're not going to try and talk over us at the same time like they're going to listen to us and um what's the word? like accommodate what we're trying to get across as a young person yourself and someone involved in youth strike how do you think that the local government council um politicians are handling climate change oh boy uh <laughs> terribly um like I think it was it was two or three weeks now uh, that Stormont declared a climate emergency. Uh, I, there was actually a couple of members of the strike who were present during that meeting uh, when that was when that was talked about, and um, apparently it was just a very very quick maybe like ten minutes of them discussing it. I put a couple of people complaining about it and then them just being like, right, cool, uh, like. That is just not on. That is not okay. And you can, you can read um, articles about it. And there's there's a couple of MLPs who are yeah, talking about this sort of Greta this, Greta that bandwagon culture. Like this is, this shouldn't be taken seriously. This is just those darn kids. Like, it, it, you're just, like it's, it's baffling that we still have members of parliament that have been elected to be there that just don't take it seriously and don't even want to think about it. And there, oh, there was, there was a fantastic quote um, I think it was actually by the environmental minister and he was like, oh no, uh, Northern Ireland has a very uh, like individual situation because we rely on our agriculture industry. And it's like, guys, like there's not going to be an agriculture industry if you keep abusing like the natural resources and our landscape. Uh, so no, I don't think they have a grasp on it. Um, I know a few members of the Green Party, obviously they, they know what the crack is, but they don't necessarily have the power to be able to put in the legislation that's needed. Um, so honestly, no, I think our local government in terms of like climate legislation, it's 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 laughing stock, to be honest. Um, and it's not going to even be another two or three years until a lot of that sort of Green New Deal stuff is even put into place, which is, again, absolutely disgraceful. Um, yeah. So to someone listening who's just heard that and is then thinking, well, then what's the point, you know, if, mm. if, the, if the men in charge aren't going to take action and, and change their ways, what's the point of groups like Extinction Rebellion and Youth Strike having a message if it's like talking to a brick wall? Because uh, you, you can see from even looking at some of like XR's re recent movements, such as in Bristol, uh, there was a plans for a new runway to be built. Uh, XR actually protested and that has been overturned. They've, they've changed that decision. So even if it's just like small little bits like that, um, th we are having an effect, we are being listened to and you do see us on the news. So it is actually having somewhat of an effect. Um, I think every striker and every part of the rebellion is quite like has a bit of that doubt in their mind. They're like, uh, what if this comes to absolutely nothing? But as a human, you have like a moral right, I think, to be able to act on when you see something is wrong, when you see something is out of place. If you just stand by, then like, I don't know, it would drive me mental personally, you know. 
if you could get a listener to take away something from this episode about youth strike, about Extinction Rebellion, about being someone in a younger generation who is co- uh, going up against these big uh, powers, what was what would your message be to them? Um, I would say just do what you think is right, because like if if you know that the position that you hold is correct and you have the evidence to back that up it doesn't matter if anybody tries to argue with you like you know you're in the correct position and I also say try and reach out to people with similar mindsets to yourself because that helps so much that sort of eco-anxiety that you have the potential to feeling when you're surrounded by people who all understand that same like emotion it helps so much like I think as humans we need a sort of community um environment to be able to thrive and like reach our like best potential but uh with things like social media it's it's kind of encouraged quite an individualized um lifestyle culture where you're kind of in your own little bubble and so on so reaching out and trying to get involved in these sort of things it does help not only your mental health but just like your well-being and being able to be like yeah no I actually have done something for my future and for my children's future Do you think on the flip side of that social media point, it could also not be individualistic and it could also allow people to reach out to other people and to join forums and to join groups? Um, So it's not like what Paul was saying with Extinction Rebellion, you know, someone sitting in Belfast can't really relate to someone jumping on a tube in London and Mm -hmm. social media allows uh, wider access to that. Oh, yeah. Well, I think... um you know, it's all about how you use the tool. Like, you can use a chainsaw to, like, hurt someone or you can use a chainsaw to cut down a tree. Like, social media is a flexible tool that, if used the right way, can have a really, really positive influence. So if you use that as a means to reach out and stay connected to people, that is obviously going to be a positive thing. Um, and just knowing how to go about using that in, in a good way and also just being aware that there are people out there who don't like what you're saying and aren't going to accept it no matter what um being aware of that and like kind of arming yourself and like having people who support you um in in your movement and just around you that is really really important so that support should in theory come from a community around you and yeah. a local community around you so do you think the local community around Belfast is doing enough I think the local community in Belfast and Northern Ireland don't really get it or they don't like a lot of people don't even really know what the IPCC report or COP26 is you know they don't really get it they've heard it very fleetingly on the news but they, they don't they don't really know what it is um so it's not necessarily that they're like bad people it's just they just they don't know about it they've they haven't really been affected by it so it's not necessarily on like their top list of concerns but I think with the growing awareness around it, with like media and news and everything, um, it is sort of XRs and youth strikes, like like us, like kind of very small organisations who are trying to get the message out. I feel like it's almost our responsibility to offer that education to people and to share that and to use the tools and equipment that we have to just try and spread this knowledge because people in Northern Ireland aren't dumb. Like, you know, I think if given the right education and the right access to the right information, which is also filtered by schools and so on, um, and on our education system, um, giving people access to that correct information is a really, really crucial part to make sure that we actually can do the maximum that, that we can as a community. Talking more about the community aspect, Paul, you uh, do know that the community does take some action um, and has taken initiative in reaching out and doing things if you could briefly talk about the anti-gold mining campaign uh, problems on the a6 yeah things like that. so you uh, you touched on um sort of the, how much traction you know extinction rebellion particularly and you strikers and so on are getting in the, in belfast and northern ireland um the interesting thing with uh with northern ireland is a very diverse ecosystem like politically you know we have like five major parties plus the normal ones right so like Whereas in other countries, it's usually two, maybe three. So, and it's similar with that in activist groups that, um, you know, there's stuff happening with, you know, there's a lot of social justice problems in Belfast. And it's not like Belfast is in any way shy of direct action, you know, looking back through its history. So, um, but we have to then try and convince people that this is a cause which is important. But Extinction Rebellion's philosophy is it, it's a movement of movements. Um, so bringing in people from 
uh, the likes of Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth and so on. But the people we're also reaching out to, for instance, is uh, Noda Clahan Point. So they're, they want to build a pier. Um, it's really quite long, so you can build in, bring in super tankers. There'll be one truck coming into Belfast every four minutes from there, one uh, oil, oil tanker truck yeah lorry coming into belfast every every four minutes so two minutes or one tanker every two minutes driving out and back to whitehead right and that's and this is a time where we're investing in fossil fuel infrastructure um at a time whenever we need to stop using fossil fuels in the next 10 years that's what it said just like caitlin said the local government is not doing anything exactly they're making noises but they're not acting now which is a second demand um so that is an issue right if you live on that road there's every reason for you, for your own self-protection, to not want one of these trucks driving past, spewing out diesel every single day into your face. Um, but then you can step back and go, this is part of a wider problem and of, uh, you know, for the society we live in and something. Anyway, um, so that's one group which kind of shows the macroscopic and the microscopic uh, issues at hand. Uh, similarly, the gold mining in Tyrone, um, it's actually my home county, um, whereby it's very much that short-termism, extract the gold, a few people make money, some people on the ground driving trucks and you know walking around on a mucky site make some money, uh, and then you're left with a contamination problem for a couple of centuries, as is seen in America and so on. Also have the, the pig factories, so um, Stop Newton Abbey Pig Factory. They're talking about millions of pigs being here, for being bred in Northern Ireland for exports to the Chinese market. We are left with a lot of pig excrement, uh, and then which has to be processed. And that's like a point. And, you know, we can't even process our human waste properly, and we're going to be having the equivalent of something like five or ten times our population of humans in pig shit coming out <laughs> every year. So... Um, so that's an issue uh, as well. So these sort of local people have their local issues, and we're try and we're trying to network them because we have a common agenda. One way of stifling this type of activism is to kind of zone people off into their little bits and then just let them sort of suffocate. And XR, one of our strategies, is to really try and join together, bring a new lease of life, and then also just share skills. Extinction Rebellion is little more than a set of suggestions for how to organise, and that's the most important thing: organising. So the final discussion note for both Caitlin and Paul is that some progress has been made, but not enough. Um, what would you say needs to be done moving forward? I know, Paul, you already touched on this, but what needs to happen right now? Um, so the official Extinction Rebellion line is that we are a pressure group, not a solutions group. And the best place to look for solutions is in the UN Emissions Gap Report 2019. It has very specific things to do. So as, a, as an example, it says that all European countries should adopt the um, public transport or mass transit systems that are employed in Europe, uh, in, the, in the best countries in Europe. So, for instance, in Germany and in um, the Netherlands. So there's a simple policy thing take cars out of Belfast, make, um, you know, okay, if you're disabled, right? Now, all of a sudden, congestion's gone. Yeah, ambitious public transport infrastructure that people are not forced to rely on their car. If you if you have to use your car, you've been forced into that position. And so there's one, but there are, yeah, uh, also space heating in houses. We need to have a deep retrofit of our houses so that we don't waste so much energy heating our houses, which saves us money, which uh, reduces air pollution and also helps to address one of the major emitters of CO2. Um, I think what needs to be done now is, yeah, so definitely I would say like our organisations are pressure groups, but building awareness on how to actually like apply that pressure. For instance, the upcoming COP26 meeting is, so you have global leaders um, and business owners are uh, meeting in Glasgow to discuss like Paris, agree Paris Agreement um, legislation and stuff. And basically they've all messed up. They don't like a lot of them have, like, I think it's most of them haven't even nearly hit any of their targets. Letting people know that and letting people be angry about that um, so that that pressure can be applied. I think if you can do anything about it, be angry. Actually, actually, just work from that place of passion and rage. Because from that emotion, then actions will will emerge. Like you you will do something about it. But just just having and being okay with sitting with that just anger. I think that's the most important first step that you can take. I think that's a. I think that 
they're both really great messages. But the final thing is, if someone's sitting listening to this and thinking the very common thought of, oh, I'm just one person, what can I really do? Mm. What would you have to say to that? Uh, no, it doesn't really work like that. Because then if you if you have, like, 20 people sitting there thinking the same thing, like, if, if you can engage people and if you and yourself can, like, just want if you want to channel that feeling into doing something that will not only help your own well-being but potentially help the planet's well-being and our children's well-being then you might as well just get up and do it like it's it's really it's it's not difficult it just takes inspiration and passion and if you're sitting there thinking that in the first place then I think you probably already have that so Come on down. We have cake sometimes. <laughs> I, I'm going to turn a phrase of, of, uh, from Jordan Peterson. Some certain people will know. So consider the ant, right? I mean, yes, we are like a tiny ant in comparison to, you know, the global sphere, right? And a single ant on its own is dead, right? It was out walking around. Um, ants are a social creature, but humans are far more social creature. And the interesting things that humans do emerges from organizing. But... To be honest, the society we live in wants to atomize us. They want to keep you in a room and watching the television and ordering food to your your house and so on. And we're sort of told that that's what makes us happy. But that's not that's not the way humans have evolved. That's not right. We are a social animal. So go outside, face your anxieties, take yourself outside your comfort zone, and then you realize that you will achieve far more by organizing with other people both through your combined intellect, but also through your combined effort, that you'll achieve things that are like magical, things you can realize that you would never have come up with or been able to achieve on your own. But you all have shared ownership, so you all own it just as much. But you, um, yeah, it's sort of weird. It's not a zero-sum game. Everyone owns the outcome equally, but we have a shared input. So, yeah, I think that's it. Organize is one of the most important things. And to be honest, if we can't fix climate change and we are into a catastrophic collapse... The most important thing we can do is organize locally because it's when a collapse happens in a society, it's the big structures that fall first, international shipping and distribution of food and stuff. Absolutely. I think it's clear that you're both very passionate about this and very, very knowledgeable. So thank you so much for coming in to talk about such a great, a great message and a great cause. Thank you, Anishka. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to LawPod. You've been listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by the law students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. This episode was produced by Richard Somerville. Our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle. LawPod is funded by the Queen's University Law School. Please follow us on Twitter at QUB LawPod and you can learn more about us at lawpod.org. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. This was LawPod. <laughs>